Composer Claude W.C. is giving credit for the statement that music is the space between the notes. You may have noticed there's a little bit more space in our service today. I recently read that some of the best musicians play fewer notes than you actually hear. They play in such a way and leave enough space that your mind fills in some of the other notes. I selected the music that was our prelude today for one hesitation that's in that piece. I've listened to this song since the 70s. There's one place where the the lead guitar player holds a note a little, just a hair longer than he did the first time through a particular section of the song. And then there's just the barest breath between that and the next note. For me, the first time I heard it, it was like, ah! And I think that's what the spaces are. They're the feelings that we don't have if we fill up all the spaces. Another part of what I read said, artists know that negative space carries weight. It is not simply an absence of content. The white space, as it's sometimes called in graphic, by graphic diviners, is content. And it's not just the forgotten stepchild of the composition. It's a first-class citizen, a thing that deserves as much, if not more, focus as the apparent subject of the work. Comedians say timing is everything. But by timing, they almost always mean the pauses. The pause is not merely the void between the things that matter. In some forms of writing, people are taught that it's the words you cut out that matter most. They are told to edit until nothing can be removed. But removing words isn't enough. They must then insert space, space for the readers to become engaged, space for the readers to, re- to reflect, process, and co-create the meaning. All of this reminds me of a scene in the movie A River Runs Through It. Has anybody seen that movie or uh, read the book? A young man takes to his father, who is a Presbyterian minister sitting in his study, some homework, I guess. The minister reads it, wads it up, throws it away, and says, make it half as long. The child goes away and comes back in a while, Minister reads it, wads it up, throws it away, and says, 
half as long again. When the child comes back, the minister says, good, now you can go play. And the whole exercise was to generate being concise and brevity, I guess, but it was also a discipline to leave space. It's been said that the greatest difference between Quakers and Unitarian Universalists is that the Quakers sit until they are moved to speak. And the Unitarian Universalists speak until they are moved to be quiet. Well, even though we have an uncommonly high percentage of introverts in our denomination, the fact is that we enjoy our discussions often better than our silences. So I'm imposing a few of them on you today. Um, And a pretty popular joke, so many of you may have heard it, is that when Unitarian Universalists die, on the way down the long white tunnel or hallway, they encounter two signs. One says, the way to heaven. And another one says, the way to a discussion about heaven. Traditionally, we are, caught, we are known to take the second way. But I think we have several things that stand in our way as far as being comfortable with silences or extended silences or of making silence a preferred behavior. You know, learning to be still and know. The most obvious problem is, uh, you know, in pursuing these practices of silence is finding time to do that. Finding time that doesn't already have numerous other demands on it is hard in our lives. I think that's true for just about everybody. And it seems to be more so all the time, or, you know, maybe that's just my perspective. But if one finds such time, the idea of spending that time doing nothing is challenging for us as well. But there's all manner of documentation that demonstrates if we take that time to be quiet, to be silent, to reflect, to meditate, we're more effective at everything else we do, and it's quite probable that it takes less time to do all that other stuff. Then there's finding a quiet place to do it. For some of us, the notion of slowing down the busyness of our minds or our physical activity may sound almost impossible, and if not impossible, a a little intolerable. 
if we get good enough at it, it doesn't matter if the space around us is quiet or not. And we don't always have to sit to find that stillness once we've learned how to carry it with us. But those sorts of things necessitate making a friend of silence or becoming a friend of silence a spiritual discipline. How well we do, how many of you think you would do very well at leaving the television, the MP3 players, the radios, all of that stuff off for several days. Some of us are good at it. Some of us have already practiced a lot, huh? But it's it can be kind of frightening to the rest of us. It's only in those spaces that we really start to hear things like the birds, the things that we're thinking a little bit deeper than our own surface conversations. This is becoming more challenging for me lately, too. I've had a practice, a routine of prayer and meditation for X amount of time every morning for years. All of a sudden, my practices aren't giving me that stillness anymore, so I need to learn a new way. Not all of a sudden, for the last year, they haven't brought me that. But I'm still committed to my practice because I know that it has taken me there. I think another of our real difficulties with silence springs from the idea that it's our primary responsibility to speak up for those who can't, whose voices are not heard. Unitarian Universalists stand on our history of doing exactly that, being a voice for those who have no voice. We remember the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And we remember that poem about first they came for the communists, but I didn't speak up because I was not a communist. Then they came for the Jews, but I didn't speak up because I was not Jewish. Then they came for the Catholics, and I did not speak up because I was a Protestant. Then they came for me, and by that time, there was no one left to speak up for me. So I'm not advocating inaction or a lack of speaking up when it's called for, because those are the notes of the songs. Silence is what comes between the notes that teaches us to listen more effectively to the notes, 
not only to the words of others, but also to their silences. Another Trappist monk, Thomas Merton, wrote, It's in the deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers for what they are, not for what they say. Silence has many dimensions. It can be a regression and an escape, a loss of self, or it can be presence, awareness, unification, self-discovery. Negative silence blurs and confuses our identity, and we lapse into daydreams or diffuse anxieties. Diffuse anxieties. Positive silence pulls us together, makes us realize who we are, who we might be, and the distance between those two things. I know that I've mentioned here before a point that um, I picked up in a literacy training session when uh, we were told that in Japanese culture, it's the tradition to wait four heartbeats between when one person finishes speaking and another one begins. In our culture, the tradition for the conventional Distance or space between those two things is one heartbeat. So if businessmen go from America to Japan to try to conduct business, they present ideas, they wait a moment. If they don't have a response, then they try to offer more information or a better uh, explanation, and then they wait. If they don't hear, they try again to explain. When the meeting is over, the Americans feel that the Japanese were dense and just couldn't get it, and the Japanese feel that the Americans left them no space to get a word in edgewise. We don't all need the same amount of space. We don't all need the same amount of silence. But when we learn how to be comfortable with that silence, and when we make it our friend, we're more likely to leave spaces in the conversations in which those who are not as quick to speak might find their voices. We might find more reverence for everything around us as we deepen our capacity for extended silences. How many of you are familiar with the expression, if you do not understand my silence, how can you understand my words? Really? Gosh, uh, I'm surprised. Usually that kind of relationship comes when people have spent a great deal of time together. In a community like this, 
we could hope that we get to know each other well enough that we notice each other's silences and what they mean. We not only need to make space for sharing ideas and co-creating in our lives, we need to also make space for the silences in our times together. We love to celebrate. We love to have spirited music, and we do often, just in case you're visiting for the first time here. (laughs) It's more challenging for us to have quieter times. But a noted anthropologist and cross-cultural educator, Angelise Arian, I'm not, is that correct, the pronunciation? Said that in the sweet territory of silence, we touch the mystery. It's the place of reflection and contemplation, and it's the place where we can connect with the deep knowing to the deep wisdom. So let us give just a little more thought to making space in our days. Maybe early. So that we can make up for it later on. (laughs) Let us see if we can befriend the quiet. Let us make space between the notes so that our sounds become music. The first part of the 56th chapter of the Tao Te Ching says that those who know don't speak, and those who speak don't know. What does that say about me? <laughs> you got to figure it out on your own, people. But you know that already. Let us tune our hearing in such a way as to better catch not only the thoughts that find voice, but also that which is unsaid. And let us speak or seek to tune our hearts to be still and know.